back to a very special episode of What the Forensics. Um, my name is Nicole and I am joined here by Rebecca and Journey in person Yay. for the very first time in our three years that we've been doing this episode, mm-hmm. which is crazy. so crazy. <laughs> um, so on today's episode, Journey is going to tell us all about the case of American gangster Machine Gun Kelly. And Rebecca will then follow that with educating us on the history of the U.S. prohibition and all of the fun stuff that goes along with that. And we have cats in the background. <laughs> Nova. Play with quiet toys. Um, I would also like to note that there is a listener's discretion advised as there are descriptions and discussions of um, suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, so on that note, I will shut my cat up. And <laughs> Journey, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, Machine Gun Kelly? Okay. And um, you guys are noticing our hats. They have nothing to do with the episode. Um, Nicole just has them and they're fun. And Nova Scotia and lobsters just kind of... You can't not wear sh- lobster hats in your Nova Scotia. Exactly. That's just how that works. And if you don't know what we're talking about, check out our socials and uh, YouTube. That's mm-hmm. Yes. If you are listening to us, I guess. Um, okay, so Machine Gun Kelly, not the rapper. That was a really fun. I'd be like, who are Machine Gun Kelly's parents? And they're like, they're so-and-so. And I was like, wait. <laughs> year. Wait a second. Okay, so Machine Gun Kelly was born July 18th, 1895 in Memphis, Tennessee. His legal name is not actually Machine Gun Kelly. Okay. Um, it's George Kelly Barnes. Oh, okay. So Kelly's in there. Mm-hmm. Kelly. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so there are some disagreements on like when he was born because some sources say that he was born in 1897 and others say he was born in Chicago in 1900. Oh. So plus or minus five years of his age for any of this. Um, Not usually that discrepant. That's interesting. Well, the one that says Chicago in 1900 was written by his son. Oh. So I'm like, he should should know know when his dad was born. (laughs) Yeah. But then I'm like, maybe his dad doesn't know. Like, I don't. But he cannot know their school. There, there are some countries that like they don't have birth certificates, and they count the. They say that you're one year old when the day you're born. Yeah, oh, right. Yeah. So it's very possible. Yeah. So, I I don't know. I don't know. So he's old though. Yes. Okay. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In yeah, in, in time is not right. <laughs> yes. Okay. But his family was like relatively normal, and I think fairly wealthy. Okay. Um, but I couldn't find too much information on him or on them. And so he went to Mississippi State College for Agriculture in 1917, but he wasn't a good student, and his highest grade was a C plus, and he only got that because he had good physical hygiene. Was it gym class? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. And I'm like, what does good physical, like, how do you get graded on that? Is it just wearing deodorant? Literally. You shower? (laughs) I don't know. But 1917, like that was right after the war, or like kind yeah, of like World War One. Yeah. But do you shower? Yes, you passed. You passed the class. Science I, class doesn't matter. You smell good, right? I wonder why he wasn't like conscripted. Oh, yeah. Maybe was it a wealthy enough family that they just kind of bought their way out? Was that a thing? Maybe. I don't know how that works. I don't know. I didn't think about that until right now. Just, when was World War One? I? I think it's 1914 to 1918. Okay, yeah. so maybe he wasn't old enough. That could be. Because if he was born in 1900, he'd be 14. He'd be 14. But if he was born in, ni- in 1895, he would have been 19. 
Yeah. She is yeah. Nova agrees. Yeah. Nova says Nova agrees. That's Good math. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. But okay. other way. Um either way, I guess is the word that I'm looking for. Um he was also like not a good student, and so he was always in trouble with the faculty, and so he was regularly trying to work off the demerits he earned. Oh, and so I don't know how you get demerits, um, but that's super fun. Okay, so when he was going to college, he met his first wife, Geneva Ramsey, and they fell in love quickly, and he quit school to get married. They had two children together, and he took a job as a cab driver in Memphis to provide for his family. Okay. And then after years of not being able to make ends meet, he quit his job to find another way to make money, and his wife didn't really like this, so she divorced (laughs) him because he was, quote, running in bad company. So I think oh. this is kind of the beginning of his bootlegging career. Yeah. yeah. And so he was only 19 years old when they divorced. And oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, my God. Yeah. I suppose plus or minus five years. Yeah. Oh, plus, obviously, but maybe minus. Um, And then he was working with a small-time gangster who I couldn't find the name of. But he was arrested quite a few times for illegal trafficking. But is not all trafficking illegal? I would think was it, dra- was it do we know what no, type they didn't of specify they just said trafficking. illegal trafficking. I really hope it was just drugs. Yeah. Well I would assume it was drug or booze. I would prefer yeah. booze. I would imagine. The options. Yeah. 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 Probably booze. Hopefully no humans. I don't think it was human. Okay. Okay. But That's promising. I wasn't there. I don't yeah. That's um, fair. <laughs> so, okay. Either way, he decided to leave Memphis with his new girlfriend and move west. So first okay. wife, new girlfriend. Um, he also changed his name to George R. Kelly in order to preserve the name of his family back in Memphis. So that's why I think they're kind of like wealthier mm. and like oh. relatively normal because most bad guys don't like to preserve their family name yeah. kind that's of thing. Fair, yeah. Um, and so he made lots of money and had many unfortunate incidences during this time. And so by tw- 1927, he had quite the reputation for himself. And he had survived many arrests and jail sentences and was becoming quite the seasoned gangster. Ooh. And then in 1928, he was caught smuggling liquor into a reservation and was sentenced to three years at Lavenworth Penitentiary. Huh? Um, he was served a similar sentence at the state penitentiary in New Mexico in 1929 for a similar conviction. But I think... It's the same one because there's not three years in between there. Yeah. And if he got out in 1929 from serving like a three-year sentence, then how could he have smuggled liquor onto a reservation in 1928? Yeah. Kind yeah, of thing. That's true. I assume that those are the same thing. Probably, yeah. yeah. Um, Four years are off. But either way, once he was out of the New Mexico penitentiary, he moved to Oklahoma City where he started working with a small-time bootlegger named Steve Anderson. And so Kelly fell for Anderson's mistress, Catherine Thorne. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Third wife. Yes. And so she was apparently quite the criminal herself. So she came from a family of outlaws and had a history of arrest for charges ranging from robbery to prostitution. Oh, oh. so she's fun. Um, she had been divorced twice, uh, and her second husband was found shot to death in suspicious circumstances three years after they got married. Ooh. And he was also a bootlegger. And so his death was labeled a suicide, but almost everyone, including the investigators, thought that uh, Catherine was involved because a few days before he was found dead, she made a comment to a gas station attendant saying he was going over to, quote, kill that goddamn Charlie Thorne, end quote. Oh, that's, yeah. that's yeah. a good reason to believe that she was involved. <laughs> that would do it. 
So yeah, that's fun. Um, I I also like the shot to death terminal. You know, I was kind of like that to me indicates more than one shot. Yeah, yeah like absolutely. repeatedly. Generally, if you are shooting yourself, you want to shoot one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. generally like, going to be one. Yeah. yeah. So I was kind of like that to me. Also says like he didn't do it. Yeah. And apparently he had also written the death note that said, quote, I cannot live with or without her, end quote. So, oh. like, maybe oh. she could have written that if she wanted to frame it as a suicide. Yeah. I don't really know. Yeah. But, hmm. um, anyway, so Catherine Thorne is the daughter of James Emery Brooks and Mrs. Laura L. Shannon. And so she was born in 1904. And so at this time, she would have been, like, around 23. And then her parents eventually divorced, and Cora, her mom, remarried to Robert Shannon. They come into play later on. And so Catherine married Lonnie Fry and had a daughter, Pauline Fry, who was eight years old about this time, so 1927. And so Catherine and Lonnie divorced not long after they got married. And so Catherine was in her teenage years when they divorced. So she changed her name to Cleo, or from Cleo to Catherine, and then joined her mother's bootlegging operation when she was 17. Oh, wow. Family business. Yeah. And so if she was 23 when they divorced and she had a daughter who was eight at that time. Yeah. She was young when they got married. Oh, wow. Crazy. That was just like the normal thing, though, back then, was it not? It was, but it's still crazy to wrap my head around. Yeah. years from 23 is like 15. Well, you would, what was it? Sorry, she was 23 divorced and already had her eight-year-old she's 23 in 1927 yeah and, and she has an eight-year-old yes that's like any one of us has having an, an eight-year-old yeah I can and imagine. is being divorced has already divorced already divorced married to your second husband who is now dead oh wow that's quite the life for yeah. a 23 year old <laughs> yeah so in 1924 when she would have been like 21 ish she married carly thorne and like that's who was found oh okay yeah so we're 1927 kelly and Catherine became inseparable and they were married by september 1930 in minneapolis and so lewis (laughs) (laughs) okay so yeah they were married by september 1930 in minneapolis and Catherine was actually a huge influence on Kelly's criminal activities um, because he was soon given the status of public enemy number one. Ooh. And she actually bought him his first machine gun and persuaded him to like practice with it and get good at it. Oh, damn. And then she would take the like spent cartridges and pass them out to her friends at the speakeasies or just like people at the speakeasies saying like, these are souvenirs from her husband, machine gun Kelly. Oh, oh so, okay yeah she kind of was like a master marketer yeah and so it's believed that she's the first person to give him that moniker and was the brains behind like a lot of the bank robberies that he pulled off throughout texas yeah so it's she, not often sorry go ahead um it's not often that you hear of like like a a crime duo where the woman is the one that influenced the man right yeah yeah it's pretty crazy that she actually like is so criminally savvy so yeah, she's the brains behind, which is insane. And like the fact that she gave him like his nickname, yeah, is kind of cool. Yeah. Um. And so then they were being criminals. Um. And then once Catherine had kind of gotten used to the money they were pulling in, she wanted to upgrade their criminal activities to kidnapping. Oh, <laughs> no more bank robberies and <laughs> stuff. Now kidnapping. The natural. Yeah. Yeah. So um, their first target was Howard Wharton. 
who is a manufacturer and a banker's son from South Bend, Indiana. Indiana? And they just chose his name out of a phone book. <laughs> we're kind of just like, what? Oh, yeah. My, that's, did they like, okay. have, like, what was the purpose of kidnapping? Just to take the kid? Yeah. So in 1932, they kidnapped him and they held him hostage uh, between like one day to many days, depending on the source. Yeah. But they learned his parents had no money. So they just released him. <laughs> okay That's a little traumatic yeah, yeah. And, but he wouldn't talk to anyone he wouldn't tell them like oh. any investigators like what actually happened to him really that's it weird so interesting hmm. because like if i was kidnapped and then released maybe it was like a sorry we kind of messed up don't tell anyone yeah. or we're gonna kill you so yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean it's a machine gun kelly yeah. <laughs> Catherine's just like yeah my husband machine gun kelly will find you yeah <laughs> yeah no i'll stay silent don't even worry about it never gonna speak of this again <laughs> yeah so that flopped and then in 1933 Catherine and kelly started to plan to kidnap um a wealthy oil tycoon and businessman charles urschel Okay. And so they had been a bit more careful choosing this person. Yeah. And so they knew he had money. Yep. And then at approximately 11.15 p.m. on Saturday, July 22nd, 1933, um, Kelly with his Tommy gun and two other men with pistols entered Urschel's mansion in Oklahoma. Uh, the Urschels were playing a game of bridge when they're, with their friends when they entered. And like oh. Kelly and his croonies entered and were like, we're going to blow everyone's heads off. And then the hostages were uncooperative as expected okay um and he had no idea who urschel was oh Oh, was he like questioning like are you yeah raise your hand there was two couples so there he was like he couldn't tell which man was urschel which i find so funny because you're planning to kidnap someone and you get there and you don't actually know who you're kidnapping yeah which i don't understand but also like you're in his house so is there not portraits of him like he's a yeah. wealthy oil tycoon like, yeah he's yeah. gotta be like a giant portrait in him yeah i would imagine but anyway so they took both men and then searched <laughs> them for identification and then once they had id they took 51 dollars from urschel's buddy walter jarrett and left him on the side of a deserted road classic okay because so, okay. right? yeah of course and then around 1 a.m Sunday, July 23rd, so three hours after he was taken, Walter Jarrett made his way back to the Urschel residence. And so in those three hours, Mrs. Urschel had called J. Edgar Hoover, the director of the FBI. Yeah. And so the investigation was, like, actually started. It's kind of cool that she just had, like... On speed dial? Yeah. Hey, Mr. Hoover. Which is insane. So then the Kelly gang took Urschel to a rural ranch in Texas, and after several days, they proceeded to demand a $200,000 ransom. And so in today's currency, that is equivalent to $4,702,938.46. That's for like a random son of an oil tycoon. Or no, he was the actual the, oil yeah, tycoon. Yeah, this is the oil tycoon. But still, that's a, that's that's a big ransom. Yeah, it, they said it was like a 2,251% increase. Wow. And I was like, oh my God. So there's that. Um... The FBI learned that Kelly and Catherine were most likely behind this kidnapping on July 24th. So they started to build, like, a background on them and where they have been recently. But they weren't trying to, like, apprehend them because they were still trying to, like, get them to work together so that they oh. could, like, mm. get him back safely. That's fair. Um, so the ransom was received on July 26th by J.G. Catlett, who is also a wealthy oil man in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and a close friend of Mr. Urschel. So he received a package that contained letters so there was a letter written to him by Mr. Urschel that requested him to act as like an intermediary for his release, kind of being like, you need to 
help. Okay, yes. Yeah. Um, a letter from Mr. Urshel to his wife, and then a typewritten note that demanded Mr. Catlett go to Oklahoma City and not talk to the Urshel family in Tulsa to hmm. kind of like comply yeah. with their demands. Yeah. And then there was also a typewritten letter to Mr. E.E. E. Kirkpatrick of Oklahoma City, um, I think, bank, that said, immediately upon receipt of this letter, you will proceed to obtain the sum of $200,000 in genuine used Federal Reserve currency in the denomination of $20 bills. That's a lot of 20s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it also said, it will be useless for you to attempt taking notes of serial numbers, making up dummy package, or anything else in the line of attempted double cross. Bear this in mind, Charles F. Urschel will remain in our custody until money has been inspected and exchanged. And furthermore, we'll be at the scene of contact for payoff. And if there should be any attempt at double cross that has two X's oh. instead of cross, uh, it will be seen that suffers a consequence. Run this ad for one week in the Daily Oklahoman. For sale, 160 acres, good five-room house, deep well, also cows, tools, tractor, corn, and hay, $3,750 for book sale. Terms, box number. You will hear from us as soon as convenient after insertion of ad. So the ad was just basically saying, like, we accept your terms. We'll do this. Yeah. That's what was sneaky. the cow part, sorry? That's just, like, they had to put this ad in the paper so that the kidnappers oh. knew that they were agreeing to pay it. I gotcha. Okay. That's sneaky. Right? Yeah. So there's that. The ad was run, and then another letter was received two days later on July 28th, addressed to the Daily Oklahoman. So this letter was from Joplin, Missouri. So I'm not sure why that's important, but I think it's just to throw them off of their location. Oh, okay. And then yeah. the letter was addressed to E. Kirkpatrick again, and it read, uh, quote, you will pack $200,000 and use general Federal Reserve notes and $20 denomination in a suitable light-colored leather bag and have someone purchase transportation for you, including birth. Aboard train number 28, sorry, it's really small, um, which departs at 10, 10 p.m. via the MK&T lines for Kansas City, Missouri. You will ride on the observation platform where you may be observed by someone at some station along the line between Oklahoma City and Kansas City, Missouri. If indication are all right, somewhere along the right-of-way, you will observe a fire on the right side of track, facing direction train is bound. That first fire will be your cue to be prepared to throw the bag to track immediately after passing the second fire. Remember this, if any trickery is attempted, you will find the remains of Ursul, and instead of joy, there will be double grief. For someone very near and dear to the Ursul family is under constant surveillance and will likewise suffer for your error. If there is the slightest hitch in these plans, for any reason whatsoever, not your fault, you will proceed on into Kansas City, Missouri, and register at the Mulebach Hotel under the name of P.E. Kincaid, of Little Rock, Arkansas, and await further instructions there. The main thing is, do not divulge the contents of this letter to any law authorities, for we have no intention of further communication. You are to make this trip Saturday, July 29th, 1933, end quote. They really planned everything. Yeah. Like, oh, the plan's not going to work, but it's not your fault? We booked you a hotel. Yeah, litter about it. Um, And there was something else in there that I thought was funny. But I, oh, like the two fires. We're like, when you see the first fire, you need to be prepared. When you see the second fire, throw the bag. <laughs> I feel like there's easier ways to get the money, though. Like, is this just to prevent them from being caught? Like, why isn't it just, so. like, drop the money in a hidden spot? We'll yeah. pick it up and go our way. Well, because if you're on a train and then you throw the bag overboard, there's less chance of someone, like, waiting there to catch them. But if you, like, drop the bag at, like, a dumpster then someone can like stake oh, out that dumpster okay, yeah that's yeah, the yeah. process of it yeah um 
And so these are like excerpts of the letters that were posted on the FBI website. So they're not like the entirety. Yeah, I think there is some that's missing or whatever. Because wow, it says like you will do this on July 29th, nineteen thirty-three, and then there's three dots. So that oh, just continues. To yeah. me, that just it continues. Um, but the FBI went along with the instructions in the letter, and they placed the two hundred thousand dollars in a light-colored leather bag. They recorded the serial numbers safe and filled another of the same bag with magazines just in case they were hijacked on the train wow. oh whoa so i don't understand like i would assume that if you were hijacked like, the kidnappers just stealing the money yeah probably that, like, that's how my brain works but yeah. i don't know so they also decided that catlett would enjoy nope nope <laughs> catlett would accompany uh kirkpatrick yep. to kansas city and Catlett sat just inside the rear end of the observation car, and Kirkpatrick sat on the observation platform where he was supposed to with the bag of magazines. Mm-hmm. So that, because they obviously know who Mr. Kirkpatrick is, mm-hmm. so they're like, maybe if he gets hijacked, they'll take magazines. Mm-hmm. And so then Kirkpatrick sat on the um, observation deck throughout the night and all the way to Kansas City, and there were no like signals seen, like no fires or anything. So they arrived in Kansas City, they followed the instructions and checked into the Mulebach Hotel under the name E. Cade. And so then while Kirkpatrick was waiting in his room, he received a telegram from Tulsa, Oklahoma that said, quote, owing to unavoidable incident, unable to keep appointed, we'll phone you about six, signed C.H. Moore. And oh. Hmm. So basically just saying, like, sorry, something came up. <laughs> like, <laughs> make your call at the time. Yeah. So they're like, we'll call you later. But I want to know if they, like, planned to have them go to Kansas City the yeah. entire time, and that's why they included that instruction in yeah. there. Yeah, or yeah. If that was just like something actually came up, yeah, yeah. Like they could have been leading them on a fake trail, so maybe they tried staking out like the whole line. Yeah, you know, and then yeah. So I don't know. I'm like, did something actually come up or not? But um, true to the telegram. Patrick received a phone call at about 5:30 p.m. from a person who asked if he was talking to Mr. Kincaid. Kirkpatrick said yes, and then they said, this is more, you have my telegram, and Kirkpatrick said yes, um, and so then Mr. Moore then instructed them to leave the Mulebach Hotel in a cab, go to the LaSalle Hotel, and then continue to walk west a block or two. So Kirkpatrick asked if he could be accompanied by a friend, and they said no, mm-hmm. which that makes, makes sense. sense. I don't yeah. know why he would ask. I would just say, Mr. Catlett, just follow me, but, like, behind. Yeah. <laughs> but just don't look suspicious. Yeah, literally. Um, so he took the bag with the $200,000 to the LaSalle and walked west. He'd only gone about half a block before a man approached him, took the bag, and said, Mr. Kincaid, I will take that bag. Kirkpatrick replied, I want some instructions. I need to telephone someone who is very interested immediately. The other man told him to return to the hotel, and Urshel returned within the specified time. Don't know what the specified time is, so I'm assuming that was in the letter. Like, if you comply to these, we will yeah. send them back X Y Z. Yeah. Um, but either way, Kirkpatrick returned to the hotel and then went back to Oklahoma City, and Mr. Catlett returned to Tulsa. So they just kind of like went home, okay. which I think is odd. Yeah. Like I yeah. would stay. Yeah, yeah. Like, wouldn't you want to stay where they're potentially keeping the hostage? Mm-hmm. Especially when that letter came from Joplin, Missouri, and you're like in Missouri, so I'd yeah. kind of like try and find Joplin and be like, "Yeah, do yeah. you remember who sent this letter?" Hmm. But okay, I guess it's evolved. Um, so kidnappers kept to their word, and Mr. Urshel arrived home at 11:30 p.m. July 31st. 
He was able to give a very detailed statement to the FBI about the movements of his kidnappers and everything that happened while he was with them. His kidnappers were stupid and discussed past crimes they had committed within earshot of him, and he was not blindfolded the entire time. What? That is so smart. Yeah. So he told them kind of like he was blindfolded, like when they were moving and stuff. But when he was at the farm, he was able to like describe in like great detail what the farm looked like. Perfect. Which is fun. And so when they released him, they released him near Norman, Oklahoma, and they gave him 10 bucks. I was like, you just kidnapped this man, held him for ransom for $200,000, and then you're like, here's a tenner. Sorry, way home. Sorry about I mean, better than nothing. I guess so. better. A little insulting. It's You're so insulting. <laughs> it's so funny. Like, that's such a kick in the teeth. You're like, sorry about the trouble. Like, thanks for being a good kidnap. Let me just take four million dollars and give yeah. you like a hundred. Literally. <laughs> it was just so odd. Yeah, like thanks for being a good sport about this. Yeah, yeah literally. So that's super fun. But with the information that they got from Urschel about where he had been held. They determined that he was most likely held at Catherine's mom's ranch near Paradise, Texas. Hmm. So the FBI raided the ranch early in the morning of August 12th, and they arrested Harvey J. Bailey, who was a notorious criminal and gunman. And so he had escaped from Kansas State Penitentiary um, at Lansing, Kansas, on May 30th, 1933. So he escaped in May, back in in July. He had been serving a sentence of 10 to 50 years on a bank robbery charge. Which is quite the range. Yeah, yeah a, little a, bit, a little bit. For a bank robbery. Um, he was wanted in connection for the murder of three police officers, an FBI special agent, and their prisoner, Frank Nash, on June 17, 1933. Oh. He had $1,100 on him, so $700 of that were from the ransom money. Yeah. He had a machine gun and two pistols as well. And so then the FBI found that the machine gun was purchased in Fort Worth by Catherine. I don't know how. Okay. But I'm assuming, like, serial numbers and stuff. Yeah. Mm. And so Catherine's uh, mom, Aura, and her new husband, Robert, were taken into custody. And Robert's son, Armin Shannon, were also taken into custody. Um, then they took Herschel to the ranch and he identified as what okay. he was staying at. Yeah. Um, and so then the Shannons admitted that Herschel was held at their house and that they helped guard him. They also told the FBI that he was kidnapped by George Kelly and Albert L. Bates. And so Bates was then taken into custody on August 12th in Denver, Colorado, on like a local charge. And he had $660 on his person, which was also from the ransom. Okay. So yeah, they raided it August 12th, and then Bates was arrested on August 12th just by happenstance. Oh, oh which okay. is kind of yeah. a fun coincidence. Convenient for historians. Right. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Um, and then also in August 1933, the FBI published wanted posters for Kelly that described him as an, quote, expert machine gunner, mm-hmm. um, which created a public frenzy, which is not very shocking. Yeah, that's um, fair. Especially because he just kidnapped, like, a super wealthy man and he's yeah. been banks for the past six years. Yeah. Um, so just add expert machine gunner to the mix of that. And so then everyone who was involved in the kidnapping of Urshel was indicted at Oklahoma City on August 23rd, 1933, and the only people not in custody were the Kellys. What? Really? Yeah, so they caught everyone else except for Catherine and George. Wow. Weird. Yeah. Um, and I didn't include the names of everyone else that ca- was caught because there was so many. Yeah. And I was like, we don't really have time for that. So the Kellys weren't apprehended for another month. 
And during that month, they kind of hopped from city to city. Um, and they would like dye their hair to remain unidentified and really enjoyed like really fancy lifestyle. And then eventually they returned to Memphis, Tennessee to live with a close friend, John Tishner, I think. So, and then this residence was raided September 26, 1933, and they were finally in FBI custody and taken to Oklahoma City. Um, Kelly was supposedly hung over after a night of partying and Catherine was still asleep when the raid occurred. Wow. Oh, wow. And then there's a quote, I don't know if you guys know it, um, where he's like, don't shoot G-men, G-men don't shoot kind of thing like asking them not oh, to shoot. okay he didn't actually say that oh oh um i think it was kind of just like embellished a little bit by like newspapers and stuff i yeah. don't totally yeah. know what happened but i think that's when fbi started getting called g-men oh interesting was my understanding of that yeah but i it was confusing so i don't know um and then on october 12th 1933 george and Catherine kelly were convicted and sentenced to life in prison um, the John Tishenor guy was also sentenced to two years and six months in prison for conspiracy and harboring and concealing a fugitive, um, as was just about everyone else that they stayed with mm-hmm. um, throughout their crimes, like that year or that month, I guess. So Ellie was transferred to Lavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas, and Catherine was transferred to a federal prison in Cincinnati. And then during this time in Lavenworth, uh, Kelly was bragging about escaping and breaking out his wife so that they could spend Christmas together. And they took those threats so seriously that they moved him to Alcatraz. <laughs> what? Oh my they were God. Like, yep. Bye. So August 1934, he moved to Alcatraz, arrived in, on September 4th, 1934. And he was some of the first prisoners to be held at Alcatraz. Oh, really? And so wow. his number is um, AZ number 117. Really? Wow! Crazy. I yeah. had no idea about machine like that. He was one of the first, right? And then I think I can't remember what Al Capone's number was, but it was in the double digits. Really? Yeah. It was like hmm. very small, so he would have been like the first. I thought Alcatraz was way older than what this is leading to. Right? Actually, yeah. Well, and then it closed in like 1960. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like it was not open for very long. Um. Hmm. So, during his stay at Alcatraz, he was constantly bragging about robberies and murders that he supposedly didn't actually commit, which was really annoying for, like, his fellow inmates. They were like, buddy, you didn't actually do that. (laughs) We know you're lying. Literally. Um, But other than that, his life at Alcatraz was, like, very uneventful. Um, He was an altar boy in the prison chapel. He worked in the laundry. He had an administrative role in the industry's office and joined a band with Al Capone. What? Yeah, I love that. So, yeah, apparently Al Capone wanted to start a band with some of the other inmates, so he petitioned the warden for a year until he was finally allowed to start a band. That's awesome. Um, I have the letter that he wrote actually petitioning in our sources. Oh, that's cool. Um, And so they were allowed to practice for 20 minutes a day, and Capone chose to play the banjo, even (laughs) though he had no experience with any instrument. Incredible. Yes, and so he taught himself how to read and play music, which is super cool. Mm. Um, he then switched instruments to the mandola, which is just like a bigger mandolin. Oh, yeah. Kind okay. of thing. Um, and so Kelly was playing the drums, and their band name was the Rock Islanders, um, <laughs> which is awesome. But I couldn't find any of the names of anyone else who was a part of it. Okay. But it kind of sounded like there was like a revolving door of people who were like mm, always yeah. playing. And Capone... Um, Right, that he could play over 500 songs and he even composed some songs. Oh, really? So he's quite the musical mastermind or whatever, supposedly. Um, side note, Capone's number was 85. 
I just oh, wow. looked it up. Oh, yeah. Wow. Okay, that's super sweet. So not super far off from his. What was it? One seventeen. Mm-hmm. They were probably within probably the same little close. range. Yeah. yeah, I totally thought his number was lower. Yeah, eighty five is still pretty low. I wonder who number one is. Oh yeah. Okay. Um. So according to the warden, Kelly could get or he got quite sad when he got mail from his family, but he would always like write letters back. Like he always filled like his quota of letters. Oh. Um. And apparently he also wrote letters to Urschel asking for him to plead his case, but Urschel obviously never responded to any letters. Understandable. Mm-hmm. So then the warden also said that Kelly showed remorse for his crimes and thought that his wife and accomplices were treated too harshly, which I find interesting because it sounds like his wife was a mastermind. Yeah. Yeah. And totally. so it's like, it feels like he was just kind of taken advantage of mm-hmm. and allowed to the crimes that his wife wanted to do but she couldn't do because she was a woman kind of thing yeah yeah in 1951 he returned to Leavenworth penitentiary his wife was released from prison in 1958 and got a job as a bookkeeper at an oklahoma hospital Hmm. um catherine's mom was also released at the same time because she was only serving 25 years i think um and both women were released um or no i think catherine was released on a ten thousand dollar bond pending appeal and so the reason she was released was that her lawyer maintained that the case against her was based on a handwriting expert who testified that she had written the letters to the FBI and the Urschel family. And so her lawyer was arguing that if another handwriting analyst were to look at that, they would say that it was someone else who wrote it. So um, the judge granted her a new trial and ordered the FBI to produce their files. But instead of doing that, they just kind of let the case lapse and she just went free. That's lazy. Yeah. But later, we found out in 1970 that an FBI report was released that contained an affidavit from another FBI handwriting expert who claimed that the letters might have been written by George. Oh, okay. So, like, they had the evidence that she wanted. They just were like, we're not going to tell you that. Oh. Oh. Yeah. So she probably would have gotten out if they did the retrial anyways. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Hmm. I think they just didn't want to be like, held responsible for it or something i don't know um but george machine gun kelly died of a heart attack at the federal penitentiary in Lavenworth, kansas on july 18th 1954 his 59th birthday oh yeah which i find it yes (laughs) i find it very satisfying that you like die on the same day that you're born yeah it kind of just feels like the end of a chapter you have like the perfect amount of times around the sun literally i'm like i like that um, and then some sources say that Catherine Kelly passed away in 1985, and some say 1998. So I don't. So give or take a couple years. Yeah. For all I know, she's still alive today. Like, <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of yeah. crazy to me that, like, even in the 90s, people still don't know when what years people died. Yeah. Well, yeah. Everywhere else, I saw like it was 1985, but then one website was like. 1998 perhaps and i was like where are you getting this information please tell me i'm assuming there must have been like a different katherine kelly and who died in 1998 Mm. and they're like is it her yeah same one yeah so that's also take with a grain of salt yeah okay but that is all i have for machine gun kelly the gangster very interesting Mm -hmm. yeah so he wasn't i really thought he was a kingpin mastermind but it was kind of yeah it was yeah which is kind of Cool. Yeah, that's neat. Mm. Women can be bad too. <laughs> um, I did a quick Google. Apparently, Frankus Lucas Bolt was 
signed um, his admission papers at Alcatraz as inmate number one. That's, that's quite cool. the name. Um, he little has been uh, apparently he was gay. It was a queer man, Frankis, uh, Frank Lucas Bolt, who served as the prison's first official inmate. He was serving in the U.S. Army in Panama when he was convicted of sodomy in 1932. So, so he, was, was, he was sent to Alcatraz because he was gay? Yeah. Yeah. That's fucked up. And number one. <laughs> I'm oh, sorry for laughing, but that's boy. insane. That is, that's fucked. Excuse my language. Alcatraz for having anal sex. <laughs> yeah. Like, Oh, yeah. yeah, put that on my tombstone. That's hilarious. <laughs> Could you imagine? Oh. That's insane. It says so. Um, J. Edgar Hoover was who signed like the admission papers. Apparently, he wanted Alcatraz seen not only as a prison for America's most dangerous mobsters and criminals, but also as a symbol of America's intolerance and prosecution of homosexuality and what he deemed undesirable lifestyles. I don't understand what was the problem with it, though. What the actual Because it was perfectly accepted by most civilizations for, like, literally thousands Ever. of years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But America said not today. Let's but it's train. also, like, how did you, how do you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, like why do you have like, agents Are you the one who tattled? <laughs> and, like, why? <laughs> like, why do you care? Edgar Hoover, are you the bottom in this relationship? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Do you think there's different laws against being, like, if you were the top or the bottom? Yeah. <laughs> or do you just all end up in Alcatraz? <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Because if you do the sodomizing versus get the sodomizing. I guess it's however that... you take it to court. Like, if you say, yeah. I was assaulted. And right. You then. Yeah. Maybe. But then that's rape. Yeah. But then if you're on top, it's a different scenario. You yeah. Can't be like, that's <laughs> sorry. sorry. That was an accident. Okay. So let's <laughs> just let us know yeah. how that works. Yeah. Not like <laughs> Not sodomy. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I can pretty much figure that one out for myself. I mean, the laws against this. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but thank you for sharing that. You're Interesting welcome. turn that it had taken. But mm-hmm. um, I'm shocked that that is who was number one, and the fact that that's that's why. Yeah. Out the phone and like and, and like there's a whole <laughs> bunch of different monsters yeah. and stuff. Yeah, there's like actually seriously dangerous criminals yeah. in Alcatraz, mm-hmm. and the first one was, was gay. gay. Was just gay. That's so <laughs> disheartening and sad. Yeah. Oh well, thank you for telling us all about that. <laughs> <You're so welcome. laughs> and um the side things that we've learned in that story. Um for some reason I thought like he would have more to do with the prohibition yeah i, did too. I thought he was like a mega bootlegger but that's yeah. how it started yeah. yeah so i'm curious now rebecca if you want to teach us a little bit about prohibition and then we can maybe like chat about where it went wrong yeah. like, i would love to <laughs> okay i found this in this research really fascinating because i love history it's yeah so fun. um so uh, we're talking obviously about the U.S. prohibition. Ooh, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, there's been prohibitions all throughout history, and at one point or another, in like most civilizations. Wow, there are still prohibitions in various countries all over the world, including Canada today for alcohol. Te- yeah, technically, 
the um like you know how we're not you can't drink alcohol in public yeah that's a prohibition oh okay okay okay. yeah interesting that's the first thing i learned how do we feel about not being able to drink alcohol in public I think moderation's nice. Yeah, like I don't I think really really on the beach. If I'd like, exactly, if I'd like to have a beer, walk and walk to a park or a hike. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Travelers. Yeah, but like if you're downing a six pack in the public park and like getting There's all like crazy with it, around. different. But stories. you can do illegal drugs anywhere. No, I don't. They're think just illegal. illegal. Oh, illegal drugs. Yeah. yeah. So I think the same for cannabis is the same as you can smoke alcohol. alcohol, but you can smoke that wherever you can smoke cigarettes i thought I don't actually know yeah laws. you can you're mm-hmm. right yeah nova scotia has weird like strict laws about it but they're not enforced like about oh. like not smoking within technically and we're off topic already so that's <laughs> yeah. uh technically in nova scotia i'm pretty sure there's like you have to be within a designated smoke yeah. smoking area right yeah. but it's not enforced i don't even think anyone knows where these designated areas are well because when we were walking into the restaurant for trivia tonight yeah, the two yeah. people standing out there were smoking weed. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if both of them were. One of them definitely was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably, yeah. And then like Toronto, literally everyone is just on the streets. Mm-hmm. Same smoking. with Seattle. Like it just smells like weed. Really, it's Seattle? Mm-hmm. Is it legal there? It is. It was oh. legal there before it was legal in Canada. Very progressive. Mm-hmm. They're very progressive. Prohibition. We're currently living through one. Okay. Okay. Yeah, but I mean, given. We will be here all night if I talk about all the prohibitions. <laughs> um, we are obviously going to do the one on the U.S. prohibition that was in the early 1900s because okay. that's the one Machine Gun Kelly was sort of involved in. Right. So the prohibition era of the United States occurred between the years of 1920 and 1933, but the U.S. Senate got the ball rolling on this um, on August 1st of 1917. So it took a few oh. years to actually enact it. Okay. okay. Yeah. Um, so on August 1st of 1917, when they passed, um, they passed a resolution for ratification to present a constitutional amendment that would prohibit the sale and actually, sorry, wouldn't do the consumption, but it prohibited the transportation, sale and manufacturing of alcohol in and to the United States. Okay. Okay. So following this, the House of Representatives in the Senate then worked together to revise the resolution because I guess they weren't happy enough with the original edition. So then between December 17th and 18th of 1917, uh, this revised resolution was certified as the 18th Amendment of the Constitution. And then it came into play in legal enforcement on January 17th of 1920. Oh, okay. okay. So that was the official day of the ban of alcohol. But okay. consumption was legal. Yeah. So like if you can't make it, you can't buy it, you can't sell it, but you can drink it. So, yeah, like, if people had it stockpiled, you can... Yeah, like, there are yeah. people, like, um, I was reading about, like, wine connoisseurs that had wine cellars and stuff. Like, they oh. they stocked their wine cellars before Prohibition. Right. Just oh, to okay. kind of get ahead of it. But also, yeah. that leaves such, like, an incentive for people to try to find bootlegged booze. Yeah. Yeah, literally. But it's also, it's like prostitution, where in the States, like, um, yeah. it's illegal to buy it, but it's not illegal to sell it yeah that's true thing. so it's kind of like it's yeah, to me, yeah like there's loopholes yeah. but john is illegal yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm. um but that was just like a really short here's how it started 1917 to 1920 there's more interesting stuff than that yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> um 
So the road to a nationwide prohibition was very long and very timely because it actually began in the 1820s. Oh, oh way back. Just a hundred years before. <laughs> yeah. So in the 1820s and 30s, religious uh, ideals and religion in general were really fast growing, spreading again in the United States. And this was actually known as the Second Great Awakening because, um, well, first of all, this is just a really big topic and I'm not going to delve into it. Mm -hmm. But basically, the Second Great Awakening in the 1820s and 30s was basically just when a lot of Americans were converting to evangelical Protestantism. Okay. And... One of the values of Protestantism yeah. was temperance, which is the abstinence from alcohol. Okay. So they also, with this, had a lot of new ideals and morals, which also happened to lead to the abolition movement to end slavery. Cool side note. Oh, oh okay, cool. Yeah, so they were really into temperance and not having slaves anymore. Me that too. sounds Me not too. Bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so with the great rise of people who were actively practicing and living by these values of Protestantism. In 1838, the state of Massachusetts became the first state at the time to pass a temperance law, which banned the sale of spirits in quantities of less than 15 gallons. So if you had more than 15 gallons, that was fair game. You were fine. Don't I think it. this meant like, like you couldn't, like a bar could buy a keg. Yeah. Like you couldn't just go to a liquor store and get a six pack. Get a six right. Pack. That's, that's, is My it cumulative assumption. 15 gallons or is it like I can buy as many six packs as I can to equal 15 gallons? I am not sure. I feel like they were sold in 15 gallon drums. Yeah. Probably. yeah. So I think you just have to buy one of those. Yeah. And then you're set. Probably. That's my so they're probably trying to like make it harder for the, the normal person to just go and buy booze unless you were getting it from like a bar or an establishment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that happened. But uh, it was soon repealed just two years later in favor of a newer system of designing temperance laws, which was allowing citizens of the county to vote on whether or not liquor licenses should be issued in their town or county. So it's basically like if, say, County A was really Protestant, really wanted temperance, then they could vote to not have, to have an abstinent town. But if the, the town over really liked alcohol and they weren't temperate that they didn't have to follow it too. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Fair for everybody. Yeah. Um, but resulting from this by the 1850s, 13 States and territories of the U S had already passed statewide laws prohibiting the sale and uh, transportation and all that jazz of alcohol. Mm -hmm. And these laws were referred to as main laws due to they're called Maine laws, but Massachusetts was the first to enact that. So now I'm not sure why they're called Maine laws. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, but they're called Maine laws, and Maine had something to do with it in 1846, where <laughs> okay. they like temperance and they like law. Good stuff. <laughs> so for the next few years, all was fine and well, and the states that wanted to be prohibition states were free to do so, while the states that didn't want to push statewide temperance were free not to do so. Even though there was various attempts um, by a lot of temperance and religious groups to further ban alcohol, these included the Women's Christian Temperance Union, who believed that alcohol was destructive to families and marriages. Mm -hmm. um, there was also the Anti-Saloon League, who viewed the culture surrounding saloons as corrupt and ungodly. Okay. Um, and then also, not a specific group, but because this was during like the Industrial Revolution and like factories were becoming a really big thing, a lot of factory owners um, supported prohibition because they thought that banning alcohol 
would allow for increased working hours. Uh, they thought without alcohol, productivity would increase, and they thought that banning it would help in preventing accidents in their factory. That I can understand. Yeah, yeah. I think banning alcohol at work yeah. is a better way to start. Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, up until the end of World War One, just like before, states were widely allowed to do their own thing when it came to the laws of alcohol. However, when World War One ended, uh, this all changed because with the end of World War One came a lot of food crisis and food shortages. And so millions of people would end up going hungry because of there's a significantly reduced food supply. And I think that year was like particularly bad for farmers. Um, so they had a drought, so they could only really import food. Um, so in an attempt to conserve grain to produce more food for their citizens, the Temporary Wartime Prohibition Act was passed on November 18th, 1918, which was the revision to the August 1st, 1917 ratification resolution. Okay. So they initially wrote it in August and then they they edited it in December. The Temporary Wartime Prohibition Act was the edit that they made. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so this Temporary Wartime Prohibition Act banned the sale of beverages that had alcohol content over 1.28%. And it officially took effect on June 30th of 1919. And the reason they did this was because obviously like beer, whiskey, all that stuff takes a lot of grain to produce. Yeah. So they thought if they're making like a lot less alcohol or at least a lot less alcoholic content, they could preserve the grain to actually be used toward food for people. Oh, okay. That makes okay. sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just small fun fact about when this took effect. So the day after the act was enacted was July 1st of 1919. Mm -hmm. And so it widely became known as the Thirsty First. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. I don't know where I've heard that, but the, I've heard that. Yeah, the Thirsty First. It was the first day of the what was supposed to be the Temporary Wartime Prohibition Act. Oh, okay. okay. Getting back to not modern day, but like Machine Gun Kelly's time. Yeah. Um, when the 18th Amendment was officially being enforced, um, it started on January 17th, 1920. So this is when it was no longer temporary. We're doing like a full, full prohibition on alcohol. Yeah. Um, a day before it was enforced, January 16th of 1920, the prohibition unit was established under the Bureau of Internal Revenue to enforce the prohibition of the manufacturing sale and transportation of alcohol. Um, but they realized a couple of years in that the IRS was having a hard time actually enforcing this. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so it later became its own bureau under the Department of Justice, which they called the Bureau of Pro uh, Prohibition. And then this was officially separated from the IRS on April 1st of 1927. Okay. So... To say that enforcing the prohibition was simple or easy would be a complete lie. <laughs> the onus was, even though the onus was put on the unit of prohibition um, as part of the IRS, at least in the beginning, to ensure that people were following the laws, they still heavily, heavily relied on local law enforcement to enforce it. Um, however, as we talked about earlier, it was even harder to kind of regulate because while everything surrounding the production, transportation, manufacturing was illegal. Consuming it wasn't. So it kind of meant that there was a lot of incentive on companies and bootleggers to 
try to continue getting alcohol to the public because they could make a massive profit like they couldn't before. Right. And to make matters worse um, for law enforcement again, between the bootleggers and companies finding loopholes to sell more bootlegged wine, um, the Bureau of uh, Prohibition... And side note, I've said prohibition so many times that every time I read it now, I don't know if I'm saying it correctly. It's not even a real word anymore. Um, but the Bureau of Prohibition essentially told law, uh, local law enforcement that they had to enforce these new laws in addition to their other duties. Uh, but they didn't, at least to most, they didn't provide additional funding or resources. Nice. So they were just, they were already strained. And then they added this. So now they're like even more strained. Yeah. Um, and as you can imagine, this didn't really go well with everyone. Uh, a lot of agencies just decided not to heavily enforce it, or they just they didn't really bother making new laws to actually figure out how to enforce it. Yeah. And one of the biggest examples of this was in Maryland, um, where they earned a reputation of being anti-prohibition because they were one of the very few states that just never bothered to enact an enforcement code. Because most states enacted a code to enforce it, but later repealed it, but they just never bothered. Okay. okay. So with a mix of lackluster law enforcement, the fact that drinking alcohol was still technically legal, and also some legal loopholes in the 18th Amendment, companies started getting very creative with ways to still supply alcohol to the public while making a profit. Mm-hmm. So one of these loopholes was that and it was in the act that pharmacies were still allowed to provide prescriptions for whiskey. What? Uh, yeah, because oh, apparently at the time, whiskey was used for so much. Yeah. It was used for so much. Uh, so some of the stuff it was prescribed for include anxiety, influenza, high blood pressure, and the common cold, just to name a few. Okay. Interesting. A lot of them are easy to fake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Yep. So as a result of this, uh, pharmacies saw a massive rise in whiskey prescriptions. And in New York, throughout the Prohibition era, the number of registered pharmacists tripled. Oh, (laughs) bootleggers began running their own pharmacies in order to profit (laughs) off their own bootleg booze. (laughs) That's funny. So if making like whiskey is illegal, how were pharmacies able to like make it and have it? That's something I I wasn't able, like, I have no idea. I'm wondering if there was, like, a government vessel that was allowed, because there was also, like, rum runners. So in in addition to bootleggers, there was the rum runners who took the rum, like, overseas to America. I'm wondering if maybe they had, like, a government vessel for that? Yeah, maybe. Like, they they must have, yeah. Yeah, because I don't know how else pharmacies would be getting their whiskey if it's allowed. Mm -hmm. Um... But in addition to the pharmacy loophole, another loophole, um, oh, I forgot to mention earlier, the Prohibition Act was more commonly, for some reason, known as the Volstead Act. Okay. Um, they're pretty interchangeable. So if I do say Volstead Act at some point, like it's written here, mm-hmm. you did the same thing. Okay. <laughs> um, but another loophole was that wine was permitted for religious purposes and ceremonies only. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So like communion. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, as you can guess, because of this, churches and synagogues um, and other, basically, any religious building that holds a religion that involves wine, ceremonies of wine, mm-hmm. um, they saw a really big rise in their enrollment. <laughs> yep. 
Yeah. And in addition to just enrolling in a church to partake in the ceremonies, there was also a massive increase in self-professed rabbis and priests because they were legally allowed to obtain wine if it meant they were going to use it for their congregation. Oh, and then like they could just say their congregation was the people buying there. Yeah. Oh. So they people were like, Yeah, I'm a rabbi. I have a congregation, but congregation was probably like their friend. Yeah. And, <laughs> oh, that's sweet. And so besides these two loopholes, there was also a really big gray area surrounding whether or not citizens were allowed to produce their own wine for like personal use. Okay. So they generally weren't allowed like it was difficult because they didn't really specify in the act that people weren't allowed to make their own, but they still banned the sale of stills. Like, obviously, you can't transport it. You, the law says, like, companies can't make it. So right. that sort of thing. Um, but because of this gray zone where people are kind of just taking advantage of, like, the weird wording, uh, companies weren't technically allowed to sell products to produce wine. But as you know... Wine is grapes. Yeah. Um, so because they still wanted to make money, companies were able to skirt around the law by selling kits containing uh, juice concentrate, uh -huh. and they sold them with warning labels on them, warning buyers that if they could, if they let the concentrate sit for too long, it might ferment and turn to wine. And we don't want that. <laughs> we don't want that. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And so there, that was for wine. Um, and same thing for alcohol, you need a still. Um, stills were now illegal to sell, but a lot of hardware stores still sold, like, the pieces needed to, like, make, like, build a still. Yeah, homemade one. Um, so this, in addition to the fact that most public U.S. libraries carried pamphlets with instructions on how to distill alcohol from the Department of Agriculture from before the Prohibition. Oh, Yeah. It was really easy to make booze. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And um, even though these loopholes did allow for people to make their own booze and all was fine and dandy for those who became like little wine connoisseurs, it also led to a big increase in illness and death because some mm. of the alcohol that people were making was tainted or poisonous, <laughs> either due to incorrect procedures in the distillation or fermentation yeah. or from buying bad batches of alcohol from bootleggers. Ooh. Or some people were so desperate that they would buy industrial alcohol and try to drink that. Ooh, Ooh that's nice. not good. Yeah. yeah. That's not good. So even though there were always risks with buying bootlegged alcohol or making your own, as I had said, some of them chose to buy industrial alcohol, um, like rubbing alcohol. But, I mean, now we know that that in and of itself is just a bad decision. Yeah. Mm -hmm. no, but no, to no. make matters worse, when Prohibition first started, the government ordered companies that produce industrial alcohol to add a number of toxic chemicals to the batches to try to deter people further <gasps> from drinking it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So we'd be here all day if I tried to list like how creative companies got with their chemicals. Yeah. But just to name a few of them, um, they added kerosene, which is derived from petroleum. Lovely. They added brucine, which is very closely related to strychnine. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. They added methyl alcohol, which is very poisonous if consumed or exposed to. Yeah. Um, they added quinine or quinine. Oh, oh uh, quinine? Quinine. Quinine. Yeah. yeah. Which in and of itself is used to treat malaria. Um, that one wasn't to poison people, but it's known to be really, really bitter. 
so they thought that it would just taste so bad that like no one wants to drink it yeah um and then some other more common commonly known things they added were gasoline acetone and chloroform wow really just throwing that all in the mix that's insane yeah so they were really just like you got any leftover chemicals just throw it in the alcohol it's fine is there a benzene in that great (laughs) there is now if not (laughs) yeah literally yeah so um it is believed that and there's not really like specific figures that i could find on this it's just kind of like estimations Mm. but it's believed that drinking tainted or poisoned alcohol whether obtained by a bootlegger brewed themselves or through drinking industrial alcohol killed over ten thousand people during the prohibition era Wow. wow people were desperate yeah yep they really were and so although the government and many citizens believed that prohibition was going to be a good thing and it would help aid in productivity levels it would decrease domestic violence it would save people's families and marriages who are affected by alcoholism it didn't do that mm-hmm. it yeah. just didn't do that <laughs> i can understand like i can see where they were coming from and like the hope absolutely yeah. but i think just like fully cutting it off was not the way to yeah. go yeah. at all definitely yeah. not um so for one as we know from Machine Gun Kelly and Al Capone, mm-hmm. organized crime and government corruption was running rampant throughout <laughs> the Prohibition. Yep. yep. Uh, so the Prohibition essentially gave organized crime groups another opportunity to conduct racketeering operations because bootlegging was now massively profitable. Yep. So every year, um, American gangsters and mob kingpins, uh, such as Al Capone or in the early days, would be machine gun kelly as well yeah uh we're raking in millions of dollars through both boot like direct bootlegging but also through selling the bootleg booze through speakeasies right okay yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, so they they ran speakeasies and no one quite knows where the name came from but obviously it's heavily suspected that it's because you had to be kind of quiet because it's a public place but a private room yeah um yeah speakeasies were popping back yeah yeah there's still a couple like speakeasies around but i just don't know like the draw to them because i'm like you can just drink like anywhere but like outside so like i don't know what makes it a speakeasy i think it's like the atmosphere and so like they still kind of keep the you need kind of like that password to get in right so it's not like um advertised like a normal bar would so i think like people will go get dressed up and like they'll go drink and like that's kind of yeah for it it totally it's, is. Yeah. I went to a speakeasy for New Year's. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Did you go to the one where you have to find the email list and they email you the password? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. And uh, we, we go downstairs, like, so it's, um, it's at the, I think it's at the Middle Spoon yeah. Dessertery, mm-hmm. and they take you down to the basement through the kitchen to, like, the back, which used to be a bank vault. Ooh, so cool. Yeah, and when you go in, it's all, like, dimly lit, and they've got, like, like like old jazz playing and they cool. like full, like shelves full of old books and oh my God. that's oh, cool. so that's fun so yeah cool. we'll have to do that yeah, yeah. yeah. That'd be so cool i think i might have the current i think they might have already sent out the current password i can send it to you guys Ooh. if i have it okay okay <laughs> um but yeah bootlegging and speakeasies were massive for racketeering yes mm-hmm. there's a lot of money in that yep um but what did law enforcement do about that? If organized crime groups were paying them, they were just really happy to turn a blind eye. Yeah. They're also profiting off of this illegal activity. Right. <laughs> yep. So 
it's said apparently that even the sitting, not currently sitting, but like at the time sitting U.S. Attorney General uh, Harry Daughtry, he was also found to be uh, guilty of accepting bribes from organized crime groups. And him, he himself was also illegally selling alcohol and providing alcohol licenses to bootleggers, as well as part or helping and pardoning a few of the bootleggers that got caught. Awesome. Wow. All right. He must have been paying him a good sum of money. No yeah. doubt. Yeah. And uh, further, there were many members of the U.S. Coast Guard who, while they were responsible for keeping rum runners out of the U.S. borders, mm-hmm. were happily accepting bribes to actually escort the boats in. Sort. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, they were accepting bribes to escort the rum runners right into port so that they could distribute their products. Wow. Oh my gosh. Okay. So that's probably how the pharmacies are getting their whiskey. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah, yeah. The U.S. Coast Guard is like, here you go. Yeah. Uh, and so aside from corruption and organized crime, the prohibition probably still helped families in lower crime, rate, crime rates, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, I think. No. Oh, okay. It didn't. Uh, um, so homicide rates, for example, steadily rose throughout prohibition. Um, oh. They did begin to rise already after World War I, yeah, but okay. it just it didn't help really continue yeah. climbing during the prohibition yeah. did like the um like the great depression have anything to do with that because i feel like once standard of living goes down crime goes up yeah, yeah. I, i'm sure that absolutely did i yeah. didn't find anything specifically about it but that's probably a very big confounding variable in yeah. statistics. okay that makes um so homicide was increasing and actually reached 9.5 ho- sorry 9.7 homicides per 100,000 people in 1933, which was the year before the prohibition ended. Okay. Uh, so that's like almost 10, 10%? Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. know. I'm sure we'll just go with that. <laughs> yeah, let's go with 10%. It's either 10% or 1%. It's still a lot. It's still a lot, yeah. Um, and interestingly, so it peaked the year before prohibition ended. Yeah. and the year after Prohibition, they just steadily started declining. Wow. Oh, okay. Yeah, people have the booze, they're all happy again. Yep. So probably, yeah, I guess bootleggers, like, the Valentine's Day massacre, I'm sure, would have yeah. heavily contributed to that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in addition to homicide, uh, suicide rates were actually decreasing after World War I uh, and, and also before Prohibition, but during Prohibition, they also began increasing again and also reached a high in 1933, just before the Prohibition ended, with 15.9 per 100,000 people committing suicide. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, I know you're not supposed to use alcohol to cope, but clearly a lot of people were. Yeah, yeah. no doubt. Yeah. That's insane. And then for the next few crime types, I couldn't find exact figures like that, but I did find uh, percentages. Um, So throughout Prohibition, the overall crime rate increased by 24%. That's a lot. Yep. And in the statistic includes uh, assault and battery, which increased 13%. Yep. And burglary and theft increased by 9%. Wow. So it's just... It didn't do good on crime like they thought it would. No doubt. And so as the Roaring Twenties was coming to an end and the Prohibition only seemed to be making crime worse, people were obviously getting really tired of the Prohibition and just wanted to be able to drink freely like the rest of the world because by this time, 
almost every country that had temporary wartime prohibitions, which Canada also had, mm-hmm. um, they had already ended their because they were temporary. This is like 15 years after World yeah. War One. Yeah. Um, yeah, like Canada's wartime prohibition lasted two years. Yeah, oh, I wow. think it was 1916 to 18. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, so they're really sick and tired of it. <laughs> and then to make matters worse and cast more doubt onto the effectiveness of prohibition and strike fear into citizens, the notorious St. Valentine's Day Massacre, <laughs> <laughs> which we also discussed in episode 32 about Al Capone, um, which was where Al Capone's uh, mob or gang killed several of their rival gang members. But if you want to know more about the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, just (laughs) watch our episode about Al Capone. It's really good. (laughs) Um, So on March 4th of 1929, President Herbert... Herbert? Yes. President... I'm I'm sorry, that name makes me laugh. Um, (laughs) President Herbert Hoover requested Congress meet for a special session to discuss the various issues... But it seems like a lot of the issues they wanted to discuss were surrounding problems that arose during the prohibition. Okay. And so during this session, uh, Congress actually passed a bill that would create a special commission that would study the faults of the prohibition. However, the findings of this special commission, one, were not what Hoover wanted. I'm pretty sure it basically said that law enforcement was not in. It wasn't enforced enough. There, We didn't have enough protocols in place to actually do this in the beginning. Right. And what was called Hoover's Noble Experiment, that's what they called prohibition, oh. was just an utter failure. <laughs> nice. Um, but even though this paper was written up, it somehow wasn't the reason they ended the prohibition, even though they had all these findings. Okay. Um, so after this... Uh, the, and not long after it, the Great Depression hit America, which was in 1929. And so the government was looking for more ways to make money to help stabilize the economy and help out its citizens. And so realizing that the prohibition wasn't working how they wanted, and Americans just wanted to drink without fear of the law, and the economy was at an all-time low, yeah. the government realized that maybe they can profit off the sale of alcohol. No kidding. And out of that came sales tax. Oh, yeah. Where sales tax come from? I don't know if that's specifically where, but the Great Depression is like where sales tax were kind of introduced. And so they ended the prohibition and added sales tax to alcohol. This didn't come as soon as the Great Depression hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so Hoover, I believe, was still president at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was time for re-election. So in 1932, Franklin D. Roosevelt was running for president now, and part of his campaign campaign, sorry, was that he would amend the constitution to legalize drinking again. And oh. obviously, people loved this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so Franklin D. Roosevelt won his presidential campaign, and on December 5th of 1933. The 21st Amendment was ratified, which overturned the 18th Amendment, which was the amendment to the Constitution that made the Prohibition Act. Okay. Okay. So the Prohibition was like 1920 to 1932. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of interesting because 1932 is when they switched to kidnapping. Oh, sorry. It was till uh, December 5th, 1933. Sorry. Oh, oh 1932 okay. is when Roosevelt was campaigning this. Right, 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 right. Okay. It's still, like a year before, they were probably like, might as well switch it up. Yeah, they were like, there's less of a need for bootlegging. So yeah. they're like, we're going to switch to kidnapping. Yeah, that, yeah. 
I didn't, I didn't, I didn't that put that connection. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so the 18th Amendment in 1920 was the beginning of the prohibition, and the 21st Amendment in 1933 was the end of the prohibition. Okay. And so with this decision, organized crime groups uh, with racketeering operations began to, began to crumble because no one had a need to buy bootlegged alcohol anymore. Mm-hmm. And so with this, crime rates also started decreasing and the prohibition was finally over. Wow. wow. <laughs> and then World War II started. <laughs> <laughs> Sweet. Okay. Yeah, so that's the... Uh, there was a lot of like complicated legal stuff at the very beginning and very end. Yeah. I didn't understand most of it, so I figured I'd stray away from that a little bit. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, yeah, but basically, Hoover said it was his his noble experiment that prohibition would work, and then Roosevelt was like, "That sucked." Noble experiment. <laughs> well, that kind of like Reagan with like the cocaine, like the war yeah, on with terror. The say no to drugs. Yeah, the war on drugs, where it's just like. That's no, go ahead. You're making worse. the problem worse. <laughs> it's so much worse. And now it's just racism. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for like, sure. Geez. That wow. is insane. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, it's neat that you had mentioned, though, that like as soon as it kind of shifted away and the prohibition ended, kidnapping became like. Yeah. It became all the rave. Yeah. All the rage. <laughs> rage. Yeah. <laughs> she actually must have. Do you think that it was the wife mm-hmm. that, like, Oh, yeah, you said it was the wife that had prompted that. Yeah. She, she was smarter than her beyond her years. She is, uh, she's something else. Yeah. Like, I kind of admire she, her. I may have glossed over this. Did she get charged with anything? Yeah, but she was released. She had a life sentence, but she was released early on, like, good behavior. Classic. And she got a job as a bookkeeper. Nice. And I'm like, why? Would, yeah. Like, But she changed her name, too. I don't know what, but probably just back to Cleo. Oh, okay. um, yeah. Because I'm like, why would you hire Catherine Kelly? Like, there were wanted posters oh, with her. So it's kind of oh. like, she was a well-known name. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of like, why would you hire her to do her book? But she's like a known criminal. Yeah. But yeah, that's fair. I don't know. They were, they were kind of a little like Bonnie and Clyde, but less deadly. Yeah. yeah. They were around the same time because there was one excerpt that was they were kind of like, making fun of bonnie and clyde like when oh. they had urshel in captivity they were talking about bonnie and clyde a little bit oh. but i don't remember exactly hmm. what yeah said. also we should do an episode on bonnie and clyde yeah, yeah. Should be very cool. <laughs> yeah. no i think oh, okay. so too but i think we've just done so many that now i'm like wait did we do that <laughs> i yeah. could not recall like five episodes ago I okay i must have just like watched a documentary or something about yeah it. okay um okay well thank you so much both of you for sharing that um, I have a, did you know, a quick one, <laughs> did you know that there was a surgical procedure with a 300% death rate? <gasps> How do you calculate that? So the individual that had the procedure, which was a two and a half minute amputation, might I add. That's a fast amputation. <laughs> what the hell? He died 300 okay. times. Um, three times, I guess. Yeah, no, but then uh, the assistant surgeon or whatever got a nick, <gasps> and so he died of, I believe, gangrene. Oh, what? And then the third individual was a spectator, because you know how they have used to have, like, those oh, operating theaters? Mm-hmm. So it was a spectator, and the knife had gotten too close to him, and he died of shock. <laughs> what? Yeah. No. He died of shock. 
So that is a 300% mortality rate. For a two and a half minute amputation. That's, yeah. What were they amputating? Um, I think it was like his leg. Oh my God. I would have thought Two and a half minutes? Yeah. Um, amputation he performed in under two and a half minutes. It was um, Robert Liston. Um, yes, whose patient died of infection, as did his young assistant, um, who's actually, he accidentally amputated his fing- uh, his assistant's fingers. Oh, so that's why you don't do an amputation in two and a half minutes. <laughs> and I learned that they did it really, really quick yeah. because, like, of blood loss. They just, like, had to do it really quick because they didn't have the anesthesia for it, and they didn't have the means. So they right. would literally, like, wrap themselves around whatever they were cutting off, yeah. and then, like, and they'd be done. <gasps> oh. But yeah, three people died. Dude. <laughs> so that's a hundred percent death rate for yeah. an amputation. Yeah, I think I've heard of that story before. Sarah was but telling me about insane. it. Yeah. That's yeah. So that was your did you know? If you want to look up more. That's so fun. There you go. That's I mean it's not fun for the people involved. <laughs> but it's yeah. a pretty crazy it historical is, fact. That yeah. is true. Yeah. Okay, I thought you meant like three hundred percent. Like when you're going into this surgery, there's a three hundred percent like likelihood that you're going to die. Yeah, and I was like, that's really high. How, yeah, you, how do you calculate yeah. that? Yeah, you know, it was okay. like three people out of one. <laughs> oh, right. That's yeah. crazy. That's so. That's yeah, wild. That is insane. The more you know, literally. Okay. Um. But yes. Thank you for all of you listening, joining us. Mm -hmm. Um, If you do want to find us and find some more about us, you can find us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Be sure to catch this episode on YouTube because we actually recorded it in person. Yay! Um, First one in three years! (laughs) We have fun hats. So please go watch. (laughs) I didn't subject them for nothing. (laughs) Um, we do have a Twitter at WT Forensics PC, and then our website is whatthaforensics.ca. This is your one-stop shop for anything. We do have a little bit of merch there. We've got all of our sources. We've got updates on that. The whole shebang. Yeah. Um, kind of the place to go. Yep. And then you can email us if you have any questions, concerns, comments, any suggestions at whatthaforensics at gmail.com. And be sure to give us a review. Yeah. Love to read them. It helps us out. Mm-hmm. And our next episode is going to be on um, Orlando and Brandon Nembard. I think that's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to talk about the faults of forensics. That's going to be kind of a broader, more discussion-based, I would yeah. say. Um, so stay tuned for that. I'm really looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. But this has been our three-year anniversary and three-year episode. Thank you, everyone, for, like, just sticking around with us. Yeah, Yeah. that's so awesome. I did not honestly think this was a possibility when we started it. Right. I thought it would end with university. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. It was just kind of, like, our COVID hobby to keep us connected and busy. Yeah. Here we are three years later. Still finally doing it in person. Yeah. <laughs> finally in person, still dealing with COVID, unfortunately. Not as yeah. bad, yeah. but still dealing with it. The new yeah. variant just hit Canada. Yeah. So yeah. Maybe, maybe we are dealing with it again. Hopefully not. <laughs> not. I reject that energy. Yeah. <laughs> that's, honestly, that's fair. Yeah. I respect that. Um, but this has been another episode of What the Forensics. And we'll catch you next time. And we hope you enjoyed. Bye! Just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field. We are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners. 
We're trying to give you the most accurate information, but we are human and can make mistakes. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you next week. Mm-hmm.